John chapter 15, we're going to start on page uh, 752. That's where we're going to spend the majority of our time together this morning. So when I was in high school, I had the privilege of playing baseball for just this legendary baseball coach. All of the, the folks that lived within a few hours of where I grew up, if you were a sports fan, you knew uh, this coach. He was known for not only loving his players really well, but for leading his players really well. And so I remember uh, getting to play under him, you know, for several years on his team. And he just had this deep reputation of despite how we were performing on the field, he just loved us. And we knew that he loved us. His name was Coach Harris. And so I remember there's this one moment where a guy on our team, his stepfather wasn't treating him very well. And Coach Harris found out about it. And he was a large, very scary man. And Coach Harris showed up at this guy's house and essentially said, if you ever touch this player again, I will kill you. And we're like, whoa. Like, that's the most, you know, this is an amazing baseball coach. And I remember uh, there was moments when guys on our team, you know, their families would go through hardship. Uh, one of my friends, his parents went through kind of a brutal divorce, and he moved in with Coach Harris for a season. And there was never any question whether or not he loved us. He just loved us very, very deeply. Uh, but beyond that, he was a really good coach, and he knew how to lead us to make us better players. And so he had this ability to, to point out all of the things that we didn't want anybody to point out because he said, I want you to play the game better. And so there was this moment my senior year in high school, every year, the first week of school, he'd call all the players together and he'd kind of give us the rundown. This is what this year is going to be like. And we showed up in his room and I'll never forget, we knew just by the look on his face that this meeting was going to be different. And kind of as the chatter settled down, he said, I'm just going to shoot you straight. I've been offered another job and in a couple of weeks, I'll no longer be here at this school. I'm not going to be your coach. And just the air just kind of went out of the room, just this feeling like, ah. Oh. Because we weren't just losing our leader, we were like losing this guy who's a deep friend who loved us so much. And I remember walking out of that meeting, talking with some of the guys on the team, and we were literally having the conversation, I don't know if I want to play the game anymore if he's not here. Like if, if he's not going to be on the field, I don't know if we want to keep playing this game. And I was thinking about that moment all week, you know, as we get into John 14, 15, and 16, I have to imagine that this is the way the disciples of Jesus must have been feeling when he delivered the unthinkable news in John chapter 13, verse 33, where he says, in a little while, you're going to see me no longer. Because for three and a half years, these disciples had been doing every ounce of their life under the love and under the leadership of Jesus. They'd wake up every morning and they'd go where Jesus wanted to go. They would do what Jesus wanted to do. They saw the power of God manifested in their life through the person of Jesus. And here they find themselves in John chapter 13, sitting at the Last Supper in the moment of just like joy and excitement. And Jesus just drops the bomb. He says, listen, in a little while, you're going to see me no longer. And this is what we talked about last week. It's not until we understand the despair that the disciples must have felt when they heard those, heard those words. It's not until we understand the despair that we can actually embrace the joy of the promise of the Holy Spirit. And so Jesus, in the midst of just their heartbreak, says, listen, John 16, verse 7, it is for your good. It's for your benefit that I'm going away. It's for your benefit that I'm going away in the flesh so that the Spirit of God can come among you. And this is one of the things that we talked about all last week is that the disciples were not getting less of Jesus when Jesus ascended. They were getting all of God when the Spirit descended. And Jesus said, you're going to have more of my love. You're going to have more of my leadership. You're going to have more of my presence. You're going to have more of my participation when the Spirit of God comes. And I just kept wrestling with that all week going, do I actually believe that? Like, do you actually believe that? Do you believe that Jesus Christ is the great truth teller? And do you believe that it is for our benefit that we will actually receive more of his love and his leadership when the Holy Spirit 
the sins into the lives of his believers. And Jesus said, this is the deal. So I love this moment. We finish up John chapter 14 last week. The disciples get up from the, the dinner table. They're done with the Passover meal. And they begin making this 45-minute journey from the house that they ate the Passover meal in to the Garden of Gethsemane, the place where Jesus would be wrongfully accused, where he'd be taken by a group of thugs and eventually led off to the place where he'd be crucified. And I love this scene because what we're going to read this morning, you need to imagine it. It would be as if you and I were walking through Arrington Vineyards late at night. Only the moon is lighting it up. Jesus takes his disciples on this 45-minute journey from the house to the garden. And if you were to go today and walk along that kind of curvy dirt road, you'd walk right through the middle of these vineyards. So I want you to just kind of picture this as we're hearing these words. This is not Jesus saying this in a classroom. Jesus knows that he has 45 minutes left face-to-face with his disciples before the crucifixion. And he says, this is what I want you to know. And here's what I want you to know is that the Holy Spirit is coming. And this is going to be so good for you. And so I just want you to kind of imagine this as we open up the word. John chapter 15, pretend you're in Arrington Vineyards. You have a glass of wine or Coke or water, whatever it is in your hand. And the moonlight is on your face. You're walking down this curvy dirt road through the vineyards. And these are the words that Jesus begins to say to his disciples in the midst of their heartache. John chapter 15, verse 1. He says, I am the true vine, and my father is the gardener. And he cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit, listen to this, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. And so I love this tremendous moment here. You just got to stop for a moment. Jesus is speaking to these guys in the midst of their sorrow. It's a cool evening in early spring around Easter time, walking down the dirt road, walking through the vineyards. The, the light of the moon is on Jesus' face. And he turns around to these guys in the midst of their sorrow, and he's ready to give them a little bit of an object lesson. And Jesus doesn't just come up with this analogy out of nowhere. He just stops and he's like, okay, here you go. And he grabs a vine. And he holds it in front of him and he says, if you want to understand what the Holy Spirit of God will be like in your life, he says, you've got to understand this. And he takes this vine and he says, I am the true vine. Now, Jesus was originally speaking to a group of Jewish men, and they would have known the imagery that Jesus was speaking about metaphorically in ways that you and I will never grasp. The symbol of the Jewish people and the Jewish religion during the time of Jesus was a vine. In fact, when you would walk in to the temple on the central column in front of the Jewish temple was a vine that wrapped around it with an inscription from Isaiah chapter 5. The Jewish people believed that the religion itself was the true vine. I love this moment. Jesus looks at these guys and he says, I'm telling you the truth. He says, what God is getting ready to do in your life goes so much deeper and so much further than your religion. He says, your hope is is not in your religion. Your hope is not in your spiritual pedigree. Your hope is not in the fact that your parents took you to synagogue or that you've managed your morality. He says, your hope is in your relationship with me, the fullness of God living in the flesh. This is just like the drop the mic moment. Jesus stops them on the garden and gets him. He says, check this out. What God is getting ready to do in you so exceeds the confines of religion and it will only be found in your connection to me. He says, I am the true vine. I'm the true vine and the gardener is my father and he has been at work in your life. Look back at the end of verse two so that you would be more fruitful in God. 
We could spend all morning talking about this reality, but I just want you to notice this. Jesus is giving us this beautiful picture of the Trinity here. And I love this picture that he gives us of the Father. He says, even in the midst of your hardship, the Father is working. He is pruning your life so that you will be more fruitful and beautiful and enjoyable in the kingdom of God. And I love this conversation that unfolds. Jesus has this vine in his hand in the midst of this dark night. The disciples' hearts are just heavy and broken. And Jesus is trying to get the good news to their head. The Holy Spirit is coming. And this is great news. And he keeps going, jump down to verse 3 with me, John chapter 15. He says, you are already pruned, or some of your Bibles say you have already been cleaned because of the word that I have spoken to you. Remain in me as I also remain in you. Jesus is going to use this word remain more than 10 times in the verses that we're going to read this morning. He's going to get really repetitive, and he's going to be repetitive for a reason. He says, no branch, verse 4, can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. Verse 5, this is kind of the thesis. He says, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I remain in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, they're thrown in the fire, and they're burned. Jesus is not talking about hell here. Jesus is just giving them an analogy. He says, listen, you've got this choice in your relationship with God. Because you can walk with God in such a way that the power of the Holy Spirit is leading you and loving you in such a way that you become like this fruitful vine. Or he says, you can be like a branch that's been withered up and thrown out in your yard. You can almost imagine Jesus just kind of saying this with a smile on his face. He's like, guys, you know what it's like? You know when a branch falls off a tree in your front yard? You drag it out and throw it out front. He's like, it's useless. He's like, and so is your religion apart from a vital connection with me. You have this choice. He keeps going. Verse 8, he says, this is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and I remain in his love. Now I've told you this, I love this phrase, so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this than to lay down their life for their friends. Jump down to verse 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you, and I appointed you so that you might go bear fruit, fruit that will last. And so whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. And then Jesus goes on to talk about these men and how the Holy Spirit is going to bear fruit through their lives. If you keep reading in John chapter 15, he's going to say the world is going to hate you. Things are not always going to be easy. This is going to be uh, uncomfortable. And this is the reason we talked about it last week. The reason we need the Holy Spirit to come as our great comforter is because when you're living life in the kingdom, your life will rarely be comfortable. And so there's this, this moment, he says, the world is going to hate you. It's going to be difficult. But I love the way he finishes. Jump down to verse 26. He says, and when the Holy Spirit comes... The one that I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me, and you must also testify about me, for you have been with me from the very beginning. This is the word of God coming through the lips of Jesus as he's talking about the Holy Spirit. Forty-five minutes left before he's arrested, and he looks at his disciples in the midst of their sorrow, and he says, may this be your comfort, the Holy Spirit is coming. Coming. 
And there are all of these things. We could preach a hundred different sermons out of John 15. I could talk about the Father. I could talk about pruning. I could talk about Jesus, uh, the vine. But for the the sake of this study that we're in, that we're talking about the Holy Spirit, I want us to just kind of hone our hearts in around these two monumental truths that Jesus is going to point out to his disciples. They're walking along this curvy road through the vineyards, and Jesus is going to stop them in the midst of this conversation about the Holy Spirit. And he's going to say, I want you to see the goal of your life. And I want you to see God's game plan for helping you realize that goal. Because I want you to see the goal, and I want you to see God's game plan for how this, this goal is going to come in. And I, I want to start with this idea of what is God's goal for your life in Nashville, Tennessee in 2014? I was wrestling with this this week, and God has just been blowing my heart up. It's like, Dave, what is the goal of your life? See, a lot of us, we don't necessarily stop and think about this. A lot of us, we just kind of react to life. All of your life is just cruise control. You know, you grew up in your family's house, whether it was good or bad. You went to high school, whether it was good or bad. Maybe you went to college, maybe you didn't. Maybe you got a job, maybe you didn't. Maybe you got married, maybe you didn't. And for so many of us, we never really stop and ask the really big question, why on earth am I here? A lot of us spend a lot of our time just reacting to what life throws our way. Uh, maybe even more challenging is sometimes we get this like moment of clarity and courage and we go, okay, we don't want life to dictate what I'm going to do. I'm going to come up, I need to come up with a plan, I need to know what I'm doing. And that's a great idea, but so often we come up with the wrong plan. We start coming up with, man, this is the goal. This is, where I'm gonna, this is what I want to do by 20 and by 30 and by 40 and by 50 and by 60. And this is where I want my kids to go to school. And this is what I want to look. And so few of us, even followers of Jesus, so few of us come before the Lord and say, God, here's my life. Just a blank piece of paper. You do whatever you want to do. You write the story in Dave Clayton's life that you want to write. Instead, a lot of us, we just kind of come before the Lord and go, God, here's the plan. Can, come on. And if we're really honest, I say this with so much love. I really love you. I'm saying this to me. I'm, I'm sitting under the weight of these words as well. If we were really honest, a lot of us, the real goal of our life revolves around our comfort, our security, our pleasure, the success of our plans, the future of our children, whatever they may be. And a lot of us spend our whole life working towards those things, and I love it. Jesus is walking with his disciples. They're going through this vineyard. The light of the moon is on his face, and he stops and says, guys, the goal of your life, the reason you exist is not for pleasure. It's not for your comfort, and it's not for your job. It's not even for your children. He says, he says God has this tremendous goal, this tremendous plan for your life, and his goal for your life is that you would bear fruit to the glory of God. Look back with me real quick, verse 8 and verse 16. Jesus is going to say this twice in the midst of this conversation. Verse 8, he says, This is to my Father's glory that you bear what? I'm going to play along with me. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much Let's do it again. That you bear much. Grace. Some of you are still too cool. That you bear much. So this is the goal of the Father. This is the goal. I, I can't imagine Jesus looking at these disciples and saying, guys, here's the plan. I made these magnetic fish bumper stickers.
And when you cut them off in traffic, it'll be for the glory of God. <laughs> Can you imagine Jesus going, hey, listen, I died on the cross. Like, we're dealing with the sin problem. We're, like, changing the world. Can you sit in plastic chairs on Sunday? <laughs> Rest of your life is yours. I need an hour on Sunday. Like, that's what I need. It's crazy. There's this moment where, where Jesus is saying, listen, here's the goal of your life, that you would bear the fruit of God for his glory in the world around you. Now, this is a, a beautiful thing. Do you remember the first command in the scriptures, Genesis chapter 1? God looks at Adam and Eve, and he says, be fruitful. First command, bear fruit. Matthew chapter 4, he calls them out of the boat. Leave the fish, leave the fishing nets, leave the boats, come with me. He says, we're going to be fishers of man, we're going to be fruitful. So he's saying here in John chapter 15, it's what he says in Matthew chapter 28 over and over and over, that the, the primary concern of God and his goal for our life is fruitfulness in the kingdom of God. And I love this. It's on their journey to the garden of Gethsemane that Jesus is reminding them of the words that the Father spoke over Adam and Eve in the garden of Eden. He says, you're made to be fruitful. You weren't created just to exist. You weren't created just to attend. You weren't created just to plug in. It says you were created so that the fruit of God's presence would flow out of you. Now, if we keep this a spiritual conversation, it's, it's really annoying. It's like, okay, Jesus, okay, be fruitful. Cool, thank you. <laughs> What's that look like? And I love it. In the context of the conversation, Jesus begins naming the fruit for the disciples. He says, let's make this really practical. And Jesus is going to speak to this reality that the Holy Spirit, when he fills a life, when a person is connected to Jesus, that there is going to be both this internal fruit of Christ and this external fruit of Christ that will last. He says there will be this internal thing that will happen. There will be this external thing. Jump down with me to verse 11. I want you to see the internal thing first. Verse 11. He says, I've told you all of this that he's leaving, that the Spirit's coming, that God will prune them. He says, I've told you all of this, verse 11, so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. Sydney and I were wrestling with this this week. I was going, I wonder if I actually believe that. I know I believe it like cognitively, but I, I wonder if I really believe that fully submitting my life to Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit would bring me the joy of God. See, I think a lot of us are like, yeah, Jesus is after my joy. But the way that we're steering our lives would reflect that we think Jesus is actually trying to ruin our joy. And Jesus looks at him and he says, here, I want you to see this. He says, as you're following me, as the, the Holy Spirit gets a hold of your life, he said, there's going to be this internal thing that begins to happen in you. In Galatians chapter 5, we'll talk about it even more. But he says, there's this thing where literally the presence and the person and the disposition of Jesus Christ begins to flood your life. Where you begin to think and to feel and to respond and to act just as Jesus acted and responded and felt because the Holy Spirit of God is in you. This word joy is really dangerous because we almost always translate it just happiness. That's what most of us hear. Like, the happiness of Jesus will be in you and your happiness will be complete. And that's not what he's saying when he's saying joy. Although being joyful often brings about happiness. The idea of joy is so much bigger. What Jesus is saying is, he's saying, Dave, Ethos Church, like as a group of people, when the Spirit of God is having his way in your life, the joy of Jesus will be your satisfaction. 
This idea of joy is that your sense of hope and purpose and contentment is completely tied to the sufficient work of God. And so it's the reason Jesus could be praised by his friends or rejected by his friends and his joy was untouchable because his presence, his life in the presence of God was immovable. This would be a good little test for you to do this week and just go, what are the things that you worry about the most? What are the areas that you fear and fret over? What are the things that you pine for and chase after? Typically, those are the areas you're trying to find joy. And Jesus says, listen, the Spirit of God wants to do something in you. And there's this internal fruit. It brings about the, the joy of God. He says, but there's this external fruit as well. And the external fruit is love of people. And throughout the rest of John chapter 15, he's going to say, as the Spirit of Christ is welling up in you, as this joy is being produced within you, the love of Christ is flowing from within you or from within you to those that are around you. And I love this. Jump down to verse 12 and 13 with me. He says, so this is my command. The joy of Christ has filled you. This is my command. Love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this than to lay down their life for their friends. Now, this is really important. Because the word that Jesus uses for life here is not talking about the physical life, although I'm sure Jesus would have meant that. But in the context of John 15, he's not instructing Phil to die for me so that Phil Phil will be joyful. He uses the word psyche. And And what he's saying here is he's saying, listen, in order for you to feel the fruit of God's spirit just bubbling up and bubbling out of your life, you have to lay down your notion of what you think it means to live a really good life. I'm convinced that Satan is not your greatest opponent for living a spirit-filled life. I'm convinced that you are your greatest opponent for living a spirit-filled life. And your perception of what will bring you joy so often robs you of the very thing that Christ is trying to lead you into. And he says, here's the way the fruit of the Spirit really begins to grow in your life. He says, you lay down your idea of what you think it means to be fully alive so that Jesus' ways can swell up in you and the result of this will be love. The result of this will be the people around you will come to know the Lord in deeper, more magnificent ways. Remember when Sydney and I got married, you know, we've been married about nine years and I remember us just kind of sitting down and wrestling with this going, okay, we want our marriage to be about the things of God. We want to make disciples. We want to encourage people. We want to reach the lost. This is what we want to exist for. And one of the things that we found very early on in our marriage is that the greatest competition for God's way in our life was our way for our life. And so everybody kept telling us, you know, man, to have a great marriage, it's going to be all about you and all about her. And it's like seven, you know, we're just going, where, where do we get this from? And so Jesus had to start inviting us to kind of lay down our view of what it meant to have a good life. And we started asking the question, okay, Maybe when we come home from a long day of work, maybe a few nights a week, we should be making disciples together. And the truth was that was fun to talk about, but it was kind of exhausting. You're going, man, I know we need to be opening up our home. I know we need to be reaching our neighbors. I know we need to, I know, like, this is what God's inviting us into. And we didn't begin to taste the joy that God had for us until we were willing to lay down our psyche or lay down our idea of what we thought it meant to be alive. And I love this picture that he gives. He says, here's the goal of your life. It's that the Spirit of God would flow through your veins with power. It's that the divine life would seize every moment that you are so that you would bear fruit for the glory of God. 
so that people would encounter you, so that they would see you, and that they would realize, man, Jesus is not only in her, Jesus is not only in him, but Jesus is for me. There should be this tangible like, thing that begins to happen. And so Jesus stops him on the road and he grabs him behind and says, listen, this is the goal of your life, that you keep bearing fruit for the glory of God. It's what God has always intended. But I love it because Jesus doesn't stop with the goal. He says, I want you to see the game plan. He says, I want you to see about how you go through life bearing this fruit. Because if you're anything like me, I hear those words of Jesus and just stress comes down. I'm like, oh, I'm the worst fruit bearer ever. And I love this. Jesus lays the game plan out. He says, here's how you bear fruit. It's not through your striving and it's not through your straining. It's actually through your staying. He says, you're not going to kill yourself. Or it's not going to be hard. It's not gonna be... He says, it's you staying in the very relationship with me that you have right now as I've been walking with you on the earth. Jump back with me to verse 5. I want you to notice this. Jesus says, I'm the vine, you're the branches. If you remain in me, just as I've remained in you, you will bear much. What's the word? Play along. Try it again. You will bear much. And apart from me, you can do nothing. I want you to notice this. Jesus says, here's the deal. I'm the vine. The vine would go down into the soil. The vine would bring the nutrients up. The vine would bring the water up into the life of the plant. He says, I'm the vine. I'm the life source. I'm the power And you are just the branches, and as long as you are connected to me, the natural outflowing of your life will be both the internal fruit of God's joy and the external fruit of God's love. He says, when you're walking with me, when you're in close relationship with me, when you're filled with the power of the Holy Spirit, bearing fruit becomes the most natural thing you could ever hope to do. Can you imagine like walking through an apple orchard? And walking past an apple tree, and you hear that apple tree just like grunting, like, and pretend you're on drugs, and you can have a conversation with an apple tree, (laughs) and you're you're like, what are you doing, apple tree? I'm trying to make fruit. Terrible analogy, won't use it ever again. (laughs) Apple trees don't work hard to bear fruit. It's what they do naturally when they're connected into the soil, when water is hitting their roots, when sun is hitting their leaves. Followers of Jesus don't have to strain and strive. Use me, God. Use me. There's no remain. There's remain. It's not striving. It's not straining. It's staying. And I love this word that he uses more than 10 times. I don't know if you write in your Bibles, you should underline it. He uses remain over and over and over because this is a command that's very different than some of the commands that the disciples had heard up to this point. So often Jesus would look at the disciples and he'd say, guys, you're not in the right place. You're missing it. Go over here. But this is not the command that Jesus gives them in the midst of their sorrow on the way to Gethsemane as he's talking about the Holy Spirit. It's not this command of do something different. Jesus actually says, keep doing exactly what you're doing. I think about this with my my children. Every night, dinner time is hell on earth. It's like a three-ring circus trying to get these. If you don't have kids, you can judge me now. When you have kids, you'll understand. Trying to get two toddlers to sit at a table and eat a meal, it is an act of God. We're just praying like... Let them sit there and eat this meal. And there are moments when the kids will get out of the the chair, and I'm like, Micah, 
Get back in the chair before I, be, before I pray for you. <laughs> Get back in the chair. And there are moments when I, as his father, I, I command him, hey, you're in the wrong place. Get in the right place. There are also moments when he's sitting there just like killing that mac and cheese, and I see that look in his eye, and I'm like, he's about to jump out of the chair. And, and, I, and I'm like, hey, stay right where you are, buddy. Don't move. Stay put. You're, you're in the right place. And you've got to hear this. This is the command that Jesus is giving the disciples. He says, for three years, you've remained in me. Every morning, you, you wake up, you eat meals with me, you go where I go, you do what I do, you listen to what I say. Every, every morning, you have been present with me. And you've got to hear this because the disciples never would have heard these words of Jesus and gone, okay, I think Jesus wants me to have quiet time. You know, you're going back to heaven, I'm going back to my job, I'll give you 10 minutes in the morning. Jesus was not interested in a portion of their day, Jesus wanted all of their day. And he looks at the disciples and he says, you've been doing this, you've been with me, you've been walking with me, and the natural response of a person who is with me, filled by the Holy Spirit, is that the fruit of God, both internally and externally, is born in your life. He says, remain, remain remain. I love this, this thought. I love the concept that Jesus lays out. But let's just talk about the elephant in the room or the elephant in the vineyard for John 15. It's what the disciples were feeling. The disciples are going, okay, Jesus, we love remaining with you, but you just told us that you're leaving. How in the world do we remain? Like, did Jesus want us to just sit around in the dirt and like wear those old robes from VBS and just like pray to the Lord all day? Is like that what you're supposed to do? With I'm like, this is a great spiritual truth. Like, how does this happen? And Jesus says, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. He says, the way you do life with me in the days ahead will be just like you've done life with me in the days that we've just experienced together. He says, you won't be able to see me. He says, but the Holy Spirit, my ever-dwelling, indwelling, forever presence, will be with you and among you and in you. Will you listen to him? Will you follow him? And he makes this beautiful promise to the disciples. Jump back to verse 4. I want you to just notice this. This is the last verse that we'll look at. Verse 4 is this beautiful verse. You kind of miss it in the English, but in the original language, it's, it's so powerful. Jesus says, you remain in me. And then the next part of the sentence in the original language, which is so powerful, he says, you remain in me just as I am constantly remaining in you. This has been the promise that Jesus makes of the Holy Spirit over and over in John chapter 14. He says, did you love me? You obey me? I'll ask the Father. He'll send you the Holy Spirit who will be in you forever. John chapter 14, verse 16 and 17. He says, I'm never going to leave you as orphans. He says, I will remain in you. Verse 21 in John chapter 14, he says, I will make my home in you forever. The thing that Jesus wants these disciples to see is that they are not getting less of God. They're getting all of God when the Spirit comes to them. And he knew it would be so hard for them to believe, just like it is so hard for you to believe, just like it's so hard for me to believe. That Jesus is actually a truth teller. And that your life is better and more adventurous than God when Jesus ascended because the Spirit of God has come to you. And the disciples are like, wow, how do we do this? And Jesus says, I'm the vine, you're the branches. You remain in me because I am in you. You're going to bear fruit. <laughs> you're going to know me. You're going to enjoy me. And the disciples were going to experience the love and the leadership of Jesus in ways they could have never hoped for. 
you keep reading the scriptures, what you're going to discover as we keep going through this study is that Jesus is a truth teller. And that Jesus has not oversold the role of the Holy Spirit in their life. The disciples have merely under-enjoyed him. <laughs> and Jesus said, this is what's coming. And so I was thinking about this this week, and I was thinking about our context. And I, I want to leave you with just three really practical questions. Uh, I want to invite you to get out something to write with. Get out your phones. Get out a piece of paper. You can jot on your arm if you want to. It doesn't matter. But I want to give you three questions that you can maybe talk about during communion, but it's going to have to go far beyond your communion time. This is something that you're going to have to wrestle with for the next several days, weeks, months, maybe, who knows. But as we're thinking about the, the words of Jesus, what he promises, and then as we think about the reality of our lives, for most of us, there's some questions that we really have to ask. Because so often the words of Jesus and the reality of our life don't yet line up. Mine, mine don't. I want to. They just don't line up yet. So I want to give you three questions to wrestle with for a few moments. First question is this. Question number one. What is the goal of your life? What is the real goal of your real life? I know it's Sunday morning. I know we're in church. I know we're sitting in these wonderful plastic chairs to the glory of God. What are you really living for? If you're going to add up your time, the way that you spent your money, the thing that brought you great joy, the things that brought you deep sorrow, what is the real thing that you're after? Does your life exist for the glory of God? You know, Sydney and I were talking about that this week, and I was going, oh, there are parts of my life that do, but man, there are a lot of parts that don't. There are a lot of places where Dave and Sydney are still chasing after the things that Dave and Sydney think are best. They go, what's, what's the real goal of your life? Is it your comfort? Is, your, is it your pleasure? Is it your security? Is it that relationship? What, what is it? Is God's goal for your life your goal for your life? And I want you to hear this. I say this with so much love. The, the Holy Spirit has no interest in helping you live for a lesser goal than God's glory. And a lot of you maybe aren't experiencing the, the spirit in your life like you see in the scriptures, and you go, what's the deal? And I would start by just asking you the question, what's your goal? If your goal is your comfort and your security and your pleasure, the Holy Spirit is not going to aid you in those things. You don't need the Holy Spirit's help to live for yourself. Uh, this week, though, I was just going, man, I don't know if, if my goal is where I want it to be. I just want to encourage you right now, because the enemy would love to condemn you. Some of you are just, like, getting blown up right now by the Spirit of God. You're, like, ready to get out of here. It's like, oh, I just want to encourage you. So we talked about a few weeks ago. Man, if God is exposing in you right now that your goal is not the same as God's goal for you, praise him. Don't be scared of that. He's trying to set you free to say, okay, God, thank you. Like one of the things I've been doing all week is going, okay, God, my goals don't totally line up with your goal for me. Will you just give me your heart? Will you give me your ways? Will you help me to see? Will you help me to think the way that you do? And so I go, some of you right now, maybe the spirit of God just blowing you up. Don't walk out of here feeling condemned. Don't walk out of here feeling scared. If you're feeling convicted, praise God for that. And say, okay, then God, give me your heart. Let me, let me have your goal for my life. First question, what is your real goal? 
Second question, are you in Jesus? Are you in Jesus? So all throughout this conversation, John chapter 14 through 16, Jesus is going to make some very exclusive statements that point to the most inclusive invitation. If you've zoned me out for a few moments, I want you to come back with me. This is really important that you hear this. Jesus makes some really exclusive statements in John chapter 14. He says, I am the way, the truth, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to God except through me. In John chapter 14, verse 12, he's going to make a huge statement. He says, if you want to have the Spirit of God at work in your life, you have to have faith in me. John chapter 14, verses 15 and 16, 17, he's going to say, if you love me, if you obey me, he says, this is the way that it happens. And you can almost feel the tension in the disciples. They're like, wait, I don't like how that feels. And you just got to hear this. Jesus makes no bones about saying, I am the only way into the presence of God. I am the only way that the divine life can come into your life. Jesus says, I am the way. It's an exclusive statement. The disciples felt some tension with this. You even see this in John chapter 14, verse 20, because one of the disciples says, okay, Jesus, but what about the rest of the world? It's as if the disciples were like, Jesus, that doesn't match up with your loving nature. Like, like what, what about the world? And I love Jesus' response to them. John chapter 14, verse 20, he says, if anyone loves me, he says, if anyone he says, I'm the only way into the presence of God. I'm the only way to the spirit-filled life. I'm the only way to find salvation. I'm the only way. And this way is open to everyone. If you are breathing, if your heart is beating, Jesus Christ is the only way to God. And that way is available to you. And I just want to ask you, are you in Jesus? I'm not asking you if you go to church. I'm not asking you if you're a nice, southern, wonderful person. I'm sure that you are. I'm just asking, does your hope, does your joy, does your glory rest in the finished work of Jesus Christ? And Jesus is going to say this spirit-filled life that we're talking about. He says, it's got to be headed to the right direction, the right goal. He says, it's only found through me. Go, are you in Jesus? And I go, if you're not, praise God. Praise God that you discover that. Today, you can call on the name of the Lord. You don't need me. You don't need anybody's help. In your seat, God, save me. God, redeem me. God, change me. Like, you can call on the Lord loves you, and he's for you. It's just this amazing thing that Jesus does here. First question, what is your goal? Second question, are you in Jesus? Third question that I want you to wrestle with this week. Are you bearing fruit with Jesus? So let's say you have the right goal, and let's say you're in the Lord. I just want to ask you the question, what's the evidence of that? Is the internal character of Christ growing up in you? Is the external reality of Christ's love flowing from you? Are your friends becoming more like God because you're their friend? Is your community experiencing the reality of Christ's love and his joy because you're in it? I go, what's the fruit? There are seasons in your life where maybe you'll just see internal fruit where God's just saying, hey, I'm working on your character right now. So some of you may be in a season right now where the Lord is pruning you. He's working on you just so that the character of Jesus will raise up in you. There's some of you that are experiencing great external fruit. You're seeing people come to the Lord. You're seeing amazing things happen. I just thought of this passage, Psalm chapter 1. It says, the man, the woman of God, 
who's rooted in God is like a tree planted by streams of water who yield its fruit in season. And I really want you to hear me clearly on this. There are different seasons of fruitfulness as you follow the Lord. But if you think you're a Christian and you've never seen any fruit, you probably need to just stop and ask the Lord. There are different seasons of fruitfulness. You've got to hear that. Please hear me very clearly. If you've been in church your whole life and you've never seen the character of Jesus growing up in you and you've never seen the mission of Jesus, if, if no one's coming to the Lord, if no one's growing in the Lord, if that's never happened in you, it's probably worth just coming before the Lord and just saying, okay, God, this is my perception of where you and I are at. Is that true? And once again, if you discover something, it's like, praise God. Jesus gives these guys some really challenging words, but he's doing it to encourage them. In the midst of their sorrow, he says, it's for your good that I'm going away so that the Holy Spirit can come. And you're gonna have more of my love and more of my leadership than you could have ever hoped for. So this morning, I know this is kind of a heavy word. I, w- I wanna end our time in prayer as we get ready to take communion. I wanna invite you to just close your eyes right now, and I'm just gonna speak the words of Jesus over you from John chapter seven. This is the promise that Jesus makes about the Holy Spirit. John chapter 7, he says, if any one of you is thirsty. So some of you are maybe discovering, you're going, man, I don't have the right goal. I'm not in Christ. I'm not bearing fruit. And that thing that you're feeling in you right now is thirst. It's thirst for more of God. I love these words from Jesus, John chapter 7. If If any one of you is thirsty, let him come to Jesus and freely drink. And springs of living water will flow from within you. By this, Jesus meant the Holy Spirit, the one that he would give to those who would believe in him later. I'm going to speak that passage over you one more time. John chapter 7. If any one of you is thirsty, if any one of you at Ethos Church is thirsty for more of God, if any one of you is thirsty for more of God, come to Jesus and freely drink. You can call on his name in worship. You can call on his name right now. Come to Jesus and freely drink, and streams of living water will flow through you. Oh, they'll flow through you. They'll bless you internally. They'll bless those externally. And by this, Jesus meant the Holy Spirit, whom he'd give to those that believe in his name. Christ, we love you. We want more of you. We are asking you to meet us.